the financial dads are not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, tax or other advice in or by virtue of this podcast. Hello, welcome to the Financial Dads Podcast. This podcast is for all the moms and dads out there who struggle with life's topics, especially related to family and finances. Now, here's my dad, Paul Fagan. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Financial Dads Podcast. Today's guest is Jerry Feta. He is the owner and founder of Wealth Dynamics. Wealth Dynamics is a financial firm that helps thousands of clients across the U.S. build wealth. Jerry has a passion for providing financial education for families so they can become financially solvent and achieve greater financial freedom in life. Jerry is married to his wife and business partner, Lexi, and together they have achieved financial independence in their own lives before the age 30 and want to help many families uh, do the same. Jerry, welcome to the show. Hey, Paul. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, this is great. We were talking a little bit before we we jumped on. Um, you're from Tampa. You're down in Tampa now. How is it down there? How's the weather? It's been good. You know, uh, I'm originally from Alaska, so uh, this is a nice change. Tampa is nice and nice and warm in the winter times, and a lot more sunlight. <laughs> oh my God, we could do a whole podcast just on that off topic. That going from Alaska to, <laughs> from one end to the other yep. of the country. That's got to be fascinating in terms of all the differences. But I guess we'll have to save that for another podcast. But while we're on it, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey? Yeah, yeah. So um, I own a company called Wealth Dynamics. And um, so I'm 30 years old. I started in the financial industry when I was 18. Um, And so basically, you know, I've gone from, uh, you know, being brand new, learning how finances work kind of more in what I would call a retail sense. Um, You know, the traditional stocks, bonds, mutual funds, retirement plans, um, to slowly evolving over time to now, really, I don't do any of that. I look at what do the wealthy historically do? Um, you know, what's the stuff that's worked for, for you know, two, three, four hundred years? Um, and that's the stuff that I focus on now is really, um, you know, tangible assets, um, helping people achieve passive income and really implementing historically what the top one percent have done uh, for, for many, many years. That's great. And what are some of those examples that you could cite? So you mentioned everyone knows stocks, bonds. That's all the common terminology that people will hear. And they dump their money into their 401ks and and IRAs. And and that seems to be the most common vehicle when you think about and have those barbecue conversations around retirement. So Mm -hmm. what are some examples of some of these other investments that you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. And that's a great point to bring up. So a good example, you know, would be and and you mentioned like stocks and bonds and retirement. A lot of those are actually very new concepts. So like the 401k has only been out since like 1979. Um, You know, the mutual fund, as we know, it didn't really get popularized until the 1930s. So, um, you know, there's a a pretty new track record. So when you look at the wealthy, you know, when you look at their net worths, top 1%, the majority of their net worth, their assets is actually small business equity. Um, they're also very heavy in real estate. Um, they do a lot of, of, uh, tangible assets that they can borrow against and collateralize. You probably remember last year, I think Elon Musk had borrowed against his stock to pay taxes or something like that. Uh, and, and people were talking about how he was cheating the tax code because it was a tax-free loan. The wealthy are really big into that. So they do stuff like real estate allows for this, um, life insurance allows for this, gold and silver allows for this. You can borrow against businesses. Um, and so really it's going to be more tangible assets. They often are, are owners of banks and owners of Wall Street firms, but they're not necessarily eating their own cooking, if that makes sense. 
That does. And, and I guess, is this tied to, you know, the opportunities for alternative investing? Is this what the alternative investing is about? Is is that related or is that one and the same when we talk about alternative investments? So it is some of the alternative investments. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you're um, investing in like a fund or you're investing with an individual. Alternative investing is just an option other than kind of the mainstream. Um, and the mainstream is really, you know, for most people, it is the mutual fund, it is the stock, it is the bonds, it is the retirement account. Um, so a really good example of what I like to do personally is called seller finance investing. Um, and this is literally mimicking what banks do. When you look at a bank, a bank does lots of mortgages. They get mortgage income and mortgage interest on homes all over the United States. Um, and so an individual as an investor, I can do the same thing as I can buy homes that are uh, you know, maybe in foreclosure or their lower end, I can have them fixed up and I can sell or finance that out to a family and I can receive passive income back, back by a real asset. Um, and that's just one of many examples of what an alternative investment like might look like like that. Okay, cool. Maybe in the, later in the podcast, we'll get into a few more, but I do want to kind of jump back to introducing you a little bit more. Um, tell us how it feels to be financially independent before the age 30 and how did you get there, right? That's what people want to know. We have a lot of listeners <laughs> that from all age brackets and 30 is a beautiful number. I know anecdotally, I talk to a lot of friends. Once again, I'm going to use, you know, back, backyard barbecue, parties, dinners. A lot of my friends personally, once again, anecdotal, they want to retire by 55. And I'm like, 55? Mm -hmm. I'm sitting here going, I got at least until 62. And then I have other friends that will say 62. I'm going to die working because I can't afford to retire, right? So you have people all over the, the board, but kind of round back to that question. How does it feel to be financially independent before age 30? And how did you get there? Yeah. So, you know, as far as how it feels, um, when you do it the way that I'm doing it, it doesn't feel uh, too too much different, I guess. So it's, it's more of a mindset of I don't have to trade time for money if I don't want to. Um, for me, I still love work. And so it's something where I'm always going to want to do something, right? Whether it's a business, whether it's, uh, you know, helping out with my church, helping with charities, whatever it might be, I'm always going to want to be involved in something. Um, and statistically, when you study, you know, retirees, typically when someone like retires and they actually stop producing, they stop working, they stop doing something active, generally they do get, they do get sicker earlier and they have shorter lifespans. And so there's something to be said for having a purpose and a reason to get out of bed in the morning. Uh, so from that standpoint, it's not too much different. I still work, you know, probably one and a half to two times more hours a week than an average employee would just because I enjoy that. Um, and, and as far as how I got there, that kind of answers that question is I took 40 years worth of work and packed it into five or 10 years um, and, and really just, you know, went crazy with that, you know, being able to, to grow my income. Uh, a big key to it is saving. Paul, there's a 40% rule is what I call it. So when you study the top 1%, they save 40% of their gross annual income, uh, which is an astronomical number. So in order to do that, you have to have a lot of income so that you have that surplus. Because if I'm making 10 grand a month and I pull 4,000 off and I still have to pay my taxes, which is another 2,000, you know, I've not got that much money left to pay the rent and to live and to buy groceries and, you know, beer and gas, right? So um, I've got to really pump the income up to be able to feasibly take 40% of it off the top, in addition to my taxes that are going to come off and still have enough to live the lifestyle that I, I desire to live. Um, so that's the linchpin. That's, that's, you know, really doing a lot of work in a very little amount of time, saving that, and then putting that into those income producing assets 
so that I'm, I'm incrementally buying my time back. I'm reducing the obligation to have to work to produce the income. That's amazing. You know, I've done this show for a few years. I've never heard about this 40% rule and, and it, it, it makes sense. You, you know, you get those light bulb moments on the show. Mm -hmm. I think, if, you know, at the end, I usually do recap. I think that's going to be it. Um, now looking back, like my financial life flashed before my eyes as you were talking about them. Like, man, if I had just done <laughs> that one thing, you know, and, and live by that rule, um, maybe I'd be so much farther today. So I think that that's very interesting. I think it's also, and this is my next question. I, I saw that you are a financial peace university coordinator for Dave Ramsey. And just as a, as an aside, I, that's how I, that he is was i guess is one of my favorite financial personalities if you want to call them that right the Susie ormans the dave ramseys the the different folks that give advice um at the time when i was looking for somebody to kind of follow um, he was the only one at the time that recommended pay your house off as fast as possible mm -hmm. right like get rid of that payment because your your biggest wealth building uh, tool is your income right which is what you're stating right mm -hmm. in, in terms of that 40 percent rule but are you still a fan of, of Dave Ramsey and follower of his teachings? And and it's okay. Like, if are there any differences in what your view is? I know for me, when I talk about Dave Ramsey, I love the basics, but I can't get past the credit card piece, right? Like the credit card piece. I can never be on his show mm -hmm. because even though quote unquote I'm debt free, the fact that I use credit cards as a vehicle for managing household expenses is a no no. Mm -hmm. Right. Which I, which I get like, so I can never go on his show and, and yell I'm debt free, even though I'd like to, I, I can't. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, but what is your view when it comes to Dave Ramsey? Yeah. So I, I worked with, um, with Dave, um, as a coordinator, but also as a, as an endorsed local provider. So for investing, um, I was one of his endorsed guys in about eight States. Um, and so I, I did a lot with his program and what I can say, you know, on, on the positive is for sure. Like, as far as budgeting and getting the financial basics and getting out of debt and building up savings, I think his program is phenomenal. Um, you know, for me, I lacked that structural structure. I grew up in a family that was very low income. We didn't have good financial habits. I didn't have anyone teaching me how to budget, how to save, you know, not to get into debt. If I did get into debt, how to get out. Uh, and so I really kind of cut my teeth on that program, just getting started and learning, you know, the baby steps, learning how to walk. Um, and so that's, that's really kind of the way that I see it. Now you don't stay a baby forever. And so that's where you learn how to walk. And then soon you should be able to run and do other things. You can jump, you can hop, you can skip, you can do whatever. Right. And so that's where, you know, if we're talking about his program from a step standpoint, um, probably after he's got, you know, baby steps after baby step three of build up your six months, that's where I am totally in a different, different realm after that. Um, you know, so step four, he says to put the money with wall street in your 401k. I would never do that. I don't want to put it with wall street. Um, you know, I don't want to put it in the 401k, um, paying off the house. I would, I would actually rather borrow against it to invest because it's a store of value. Um, you know, and he is big into real estate. So that's another part too, where I like real estate. I don't like the traditional rental side. Um, and, and it's more of just a logistics problem of, of, I don't want to be a landlord. Right. And so. Um, you know, for somebody that wants a very, like, I don't have to think about it method and, and they're never going to be wealthy, but they will be retired one day. Dave's plan will definitely get you there. Um, you know, and then if you look at how Dave actually does this, he really puts a lot into his business. The man's very smart. He's very successful. 
Um, I think his net worth is like 400 million or somewhere in that range, right? So he knows what he's doing, but it's one of those things where when I look at wealthy people, the, the number one rule is do as they do, not as they say. So I'm watching what are they doing rather than what are they telling me I should do? Oh, that's very insightful. Yeah. And two things I want to pull out of that. Um, one is you talk about, you know, not putting money in kind of those mutual fund investments. And and the question I have is, you know, most of the country, at least uh, the folks that are listening to this show, they, they are worker bees mm -hmm. like myself, right? And the 401k is the vehicle mm -hmm. or the TSP or the 503b. That is the vehicle uh, because the tax laws and everything else kind of just point you towards, you know, getting that tax break. You're, you're able to, you know, either put in the money tax, you know, before taxes, after taxes, companies, uh, for the most part that I find give, you know, some level of generous match. What do you tell people, you know, when they, when they say that's, that's my vehicle, you know, how do I alternative out of that? And do you, tell people to completely abandon it or take advantage up to the match. I heard people say, you know, take advantage up to the match. So I'd love to hear your view a little bit about if you're in a 401k world, mm -hmm. uh, how do you, how do you, how do you drive through that while still adhering to other investments that you talk about? Yeah, great question. So, so the first thing I would say on that is everyone has to kind of make up their own decision on the 401k plan. Um, you'll notice that that's probably the only investment in your life that doesn't come with an advisor. Um, you know, if you open up even an IRA, there's usually a guy that sits down with you and helps you with all of the things and goes over your annual review. The 401k doesn't really have that. You get a list and a login and a 1-800 number, and you're kind of just there to, um, pave your own way. And hopefully you navigate things successfully with it. So even the employer doesn't want to be involved in what you decide to do with your 401k. Ultimately, you know, that's kind of up to the individual. So same thing with this is everyone's got to make their own decision on, is this the right thing for me? Um, there's not good and bad when it comes to financial products. They're amoral and they're also um, inanimate. So they don't have ethics and morals. They don't do things. It's the, the, is it the right tool for the job or is it not? Uh, and that's more on the individual's understanding and what they're trying to accomplish. Um, so I will stay on the 401k. Only been around since 1979. Um, it was invented by a guy named Ted Benna. Um, and so Ted basically created the 401k using the internal revenue code. And it was just an internal retirement plan for his company. It was not a wall, a wall street thing that everyone knew about. Um, you know, it was his company could do a, an employee salary deferral. They could get tax deductions. And then they would put that in, in basically one equity fund that they managed. Um, in the 1980s, wall street got their hands on it around the same time pensions phased out. So a lot of these large companies, they used to guarantee an income stream for their employees. Um, as a business owner myself, very risky. I don't know why or how they thought they were going to go about doing that. It sounds really nice, but you basically have these committed liabilities for the next several decades on however many employees you had. So the companies that were doing pensions, they tried to phase out. They wanted to go from a, a guaranteed compensation and, and basically it's called defined benefit, which is what a pension is over to the 401k, which is called defined contribution. They didn't want to be responsible for how much money you get on the back end. They just want you to put in money on the front end. So it kind of lessens the liability with them. Um, the 401k has been marketed like crazy. So Ted Bennett, the guy that invented it, he was interviewed you know, in the last couple of years and he said that he believes he created a monster um, with the 401k plan. He never intended for it to be this giant thing that everyone uses. Um, and so when I look at it, the few things that I look at, Paul, is the tax deduction is the first thing we've got to look at. I get a deduction on the front end, which is great, okay? Now, 
when I pull that money out, I will pay taxes on it later. And so the idea that we're taught is, well, you're going to be retired, you're going to need less income. Uh, and so you will be in a lower tax bracket. Well, the reality is, is for me, I'm 30. When I'm 60, I know for a fact income taxes are going to be higher than they are today. Um, you know, they increase at an annual rate historically of about 1.65%. And so we're borrowing more money as a country. We have more debt. We've got, you know, income tax pays that. So the tax rate will be higher. Um, the other thing that will be higher is inflation. So I'm actually going to have to withdraw more money because it's going to cost more money to buy the same things I buy today. And so when I look at the equation of withdraw more dollars and multiply those dollars against a higher tax rate, um, oftentimes the money and taxes that I'll pay on my distributions are going to offset whatever I got in, in the deduction on the front end. So it's kind of a moot point. I'm probably going to pay more in taxes later than I got in the deduction today. Um, and so that's something I don't like about that. I would rather, I would rather just, you know, get the deduction other ways and not have that penalty on the back end of paying more taxes later. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is the match. Um, employers surveyed said that when they match, it's actually uh, for almost 90 cent on the dollar um, salary reduction. So they're not giving you extra money. Like if they didn't offer a 401k plan, they would just pay you more. Um, and the 401k is a deferred compensation plan by IRS code. So we're deferring our compensation. We're opting to be paid later. And so we're putting in our dollar to get the match, but then we don't get either of those dollars till we're 60. Um, and so that's, that's a few of the things that I look at as far as just getting the wheels turning on, do I actually know as much about this as I thought I did? And I was a financial advisor. I had all the licenses. I had the, all the tests passed and I thought I knew this stuff until I started digging into it. And I was like, wow, I've never thought of it that way. Yeah, that is interesting because I, it, once again, I, it's, I'm definitely going to listen back. I, I always listen back to my podcast. This is one that I think I'll listen back to. A couple of times and we haven't we've just scratched the surface so thank you for that mm -hmm. um i i guess so the 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 follow-up question is so you know very in kind of very succinct you know someone like myself i have a 401k what is the prescribed guidance in terms of do i just invest up to the match and then put my money elsewhere just so i could get that match because i'm not going to convince my company to to disband the 401k mm -hmm. And they're not going to make it up for me. Like, so is there any recommendations for people that, you know, they're, they're stuck with a 401k or, or have to invest your, your prescriptive guidance is to, you know, what would that be? Yeah. So the first thing with that is I would look at, does an individual have consumer debt? Um, if they have consumer debt, I would say, don't do the 401k handle your debt. You know, you're, if you're, let's say you had an interest rate on a credit card, that's 18%. If you pay that off, you're making 18% by not having to pay the 18. Um, you're also getting a yield by freeing up that minimum payment. And so in that sense, it is a form of investing is paying off debt, getting rid of that. Um, and so if I put that dollar match into the 401k, it's helping me when I'm 60, but I need help now. And that was the biggest thing I noticed as a financial advisor, Paul, is I would sit down with people and I would plan out their Roth IRA and their traditional IRA and their annuities. And I would be like, you know, when you're 60, you're going to be set. Well, they were terrified about two weeks from now right? 80% of people are living paycheck to paycheck. So they're like, that's great. I'm going to be good when I'm 60. What about next month? Right? So uh, that's really where I show people, you know, if you're doing the 401k, more power to you if you think that that's the right decision, but I would do it in the right sequence. It's a tax planning play. Um, I wouldn't be trying to reduce my taxes if I've got more debt and I need that income today. Same thing if, if I'm insolvent. A lot of people during COVID, they had to pull their 401ks out and use that COVID re uh, retirement distribution. Um, and so they were, they were using that as a reserve because they didn't actually have real reserves. 
So rather than putting that dollar into a plan with Wall Street that I can't touch till I'm 60, if I don't have, you know, several months worth of emergency fund reserves and savings or in life insurance or wherever it is I'm keeping that, um, I would focus on that first so that I have, you know, this week, next month, the next six months covered. Um, you know, so that's kind of what I would look at on the match. Personally, I don't, I wouldn't like to do the match. If I had a 401k, I wouldn't do it unless it was self-directed. Um, so the 401k is not bad. It's just tied to wall street. So if I'm able to get my company to self-direct the plan where I could invest it in real estate, I could invest it in precious metals. I could invest it in private businesses. Um, I would totally do it because those are assets I believe in and I understand. Um, but they are set up where you have a menu of, of retail financial products, and that's the only thing I can pick from. And so from that standpoint, I don't like investing there. And so it doesn't matter how good the match is. I just wouldn't put money into it. Understood. Yeah. And you said something insightful, which reminded me I had a, I had a pretty ornery manager once that when I, I used the word hope and he's, and he said, Paul, hope is not a plan. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, and that always resonated with me. You said something about hope and, and I could see where, you know, a lot of people, what I hear once again, anecdotally, they put money, stuff money as much as they can into 401ks and TSPs and 503Bs. And, and they always say, well, I hope it'll cover it. Mm -hmm. Right. That's what they say. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know how many times I've heard that where people say, yep, I just keep putting money in there and, and I hope for the best, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's got to be a better way. And that's why we have people like yourself on the show and others to kind of hear different viewpoints when it comes to financial success and financial well-being. I, I did have one question. You talked about the term. It, was it stored value? Yes, stored value. With home ownership. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I haven't heard that term before, and I'd love to hear a little bit about your view on that. Yeah. So the, the phrase, you know, store of value, this is a little bit more of an old school viewpoint on saving money. Um, so, you know, prior to 1971, the U.S. dollar was backed by gold. Gold was considered a real store of value. So store of value, if you think about like, like a refrigerator, for example, if I'm trying to store food, I want a fridge that actually does that. You know, like I have milk in two weeks, I want the milk to be drinkable still. I don't want it to be spoiled and nasty. And so um, I'm saving the food so I can use it later. Uh, and same thing with money. If I'm saving money, you know, we hear this phrase, it's not just what you make, it's what you keep. Well, it's also not just what you keep, it's where you keep it. So if I'm putting my money somewhere where over time it spoils and it's less usable, then I'm not actually storing the value. And that's what money is, is it's, a, it's purchasing power. It's units of currency that I can trade for, you know, goods and services and, and you know, the things that I want and need in my life. And it kind of is just like a coupon system. As long as I have that coupon, someone is going to give me whatever the exchange back would be. Now, over time, that coupon does expire. No different than milk would, no different than meat or wheat or any of those things because of inflation. And so a store of value is something where, you know, let's say back in the day before we had currency, let's say that I did produce uh, dairy. Let's say I had a dairy farm and we all went to the market and bartered and you had eggs and, and someone else had wheat and we would trade stuff back and forth. Forth. Well, if I produced dairy and I went to the market and nobody wanted dairy, I would trade it for something that I knew wasn't going to spoil. So that next time I went to the market, I, I didn't have a bunch of spoiled milk and cheese. I had something I could still bring back and, and trade for what I wanted and needed at that point. That's how, that's how I look at storing value with currency. So rather than keeping it in a bank where I know it's going to spoil, you know, it's going down in value every year. They're paying me maybe 0.10% on my savings. That's not really a store of value. And it's also got nothing tangible behind it. It's not backed by anything. 
So when I talk about stores of value, it's literally I'm going to take my dollars and I'm going to trade it for a tangible asset that, you know, for me does store value. It's got a track record. It's something that's physical. It's, it's got lots of agreement that it has value uh, and I can use it later. I can, you know, either sell it or borrow against it. Um, and so my three favorite stores of value are life insurance, precious metals, and real estate. Uh, most people don't look at their home as a store of value, but if you think about it, it really is. You know, you're putting money into it every month. So that's a function of saving, right? It's building up value. And then you could sell it later. You could borrow against it. It's got all the same uh, functions that a store of value should have. Yeah, no, I, I, I that's very insightful. And I think I, I did that sort of without thinking about it. So w the first episode my buddy Jody and I ever did was me paying off the mortgage mm -hmm. many years ago. Um, that was a Dave Ramsey-ism. My wife thought I was crazy. And I don't regret it mm -hmm. at all. Um, it not only has it given me stored value, but I think it's given me peace of mind and other things. So I think that's, it, it's been good for me. And then you mentioned something about the coupons. I'm, I'm reminded of that Wolf of Wall Street scene with the fun coupons when Leonardo DiCaprio's on the boat throw in the fun coupons, the dollars, but you're right. They're like coupons. They're not really the, 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 the these other investments that you're talking about have that kind of intrinsic value. Is that what yeah, I'm exactly intrinsic value? Word. Yeah. That, that, you know, gold, silver, real estate, those pieces, there's something there that's worth something. And no matter what market, it's worth something as opposed to a stack of paper. So I I don't want to get too crazy on the film on the on kind of yeah. thinking that through, but maybe we'll kind of get to, you know, the topic, right? Or the title that we talked about, how to build wealth like the top 1%. So can we talk a little bit about that step-by-step -step sequence, a little bit more about, you know, that that pattern? We were, I think we know how they're building the wealth. Mm -hmm. What's that step-by-step -step sequence to build that wealth? Yeah, so I have a book on this that I wrote, um, and then I have it here. It's called Blueprints of Financial Freedom, and it's about sequence. And that, that was the main reason why I wrote it is, um, you know, I went from being a mainstream retail financial advisor starting to learn about these strategies. And so when I, when I started to learn about it, it was kind of like I related it to building a house. I was learning like the materials you're supposed to use. You know, you need these materials, you need these tools. Uh, and that's great. But if I was going to build a house, like if you just gave me a truck from full of materials and tools and said, okay, go, I would have no idea what to do. I would, I would probably make a mess and it would not be safe for anybody to live in. Um, and so there's something to be said for sequence. You know, when do I do something and in what order should I do it? Uh, you know, if you take this even to something like cooking food, there's a sequence. You do this ingredient, then you do that ingredient. And so it's the same thing with finances. So, you know, the first thing that we teach people, and it doesn't matter what level you're at, it's financial literacy. You know, the wealthy are so financially literate. One of the people that I studied his biography on was um, John Rockefeller, right? And so John Rockefeller, when he was a teenager, he was studying accounting. His very first date, uh, he, he, he bought a soda for the girl and then he pulled his little notepad out of his front pocket and he logged the transaction on the spot in front of the girl, right? And that's, to me, that's financial literacy. Like when I was 15, 16, I wasn't thinking about that. I had no idea how accounting worked. I had no idea how finances worked. And so, you know, the wealthy study money, they're students of, of the financial system. Uh, and that's something that it never goes away. The more the more you get, the more knowledge you need to have in order to sustain it. And that way you can continue learning and going to the next level with it. So there's education. The next piece for us is solvency. 
Um, you know, solvency for me is defined as I earn more than I spend. I own more than I owe. Uh, my liabilities are protected. I've got more more risk than, or I've got more reward than I've got risk. Um, and, and so those are also things, you know, that, that I look at as well with wealth is I've got to have a foundation. Um, another piece on solvency is credit worthiness. This is the part where probably 80% of America is not doing well. You know, for the most part, we don't earn more than we spend. We do have consumer debt. You know, we don't have more, more assets than liabilities. Um, you know, we aren't properly protected and insured. We do, we, we do have bad credit and all sorts of things going on there too. So uh, the wealthy, they handle that. That's something where they are very solvent. You know, you look at some of the longest standing wealthy families, they have solvency as that foundation and every member of their family learns that. So that way you're able to continue building, right? So that's, that's a piece. The other one after that, that's kind of like step two or phase two, if you will, um, is kind of breaking out of some of the financial traps. Um, there's a lot of marketing behind banks and Wall Street. Um, and so the three big ones that I tell people to try and avoid is banks, Wall Street, and the IRS. If you can keep your money out of their hands and keep it in your hands, you're doing a good job. Uh, and, and if you study the wealthy, they, they do that. You know, you look at um, some of the tax returns of, of some of the top one percenters today that we hear about. They really don't pay a lot in taxes. They found ways to legally avoid the IRS. Um, they're not leaving a bunch of money in the bank. They're putting it into investments and assets. So that's a big piece. And then really, you know, um, probably the main one we talked about at the beginning is the passive income, investing for passive income. And that's something we teach people is we get through these layers of, of progress. And then it's like, good, now let's go invest for, for passive income. Uh, and that passive income, we want to build that up to where it exceeds savings, expenses, and taxes. And it basically buys my time back. I don't have the obligation of trading time for money anymore at that point. Um, we've called that retirement. I call that financial independence. It doesn't have to wait till you're 60 or 65 if you really jump on it and make it happen. Very cool. Yeah, and it's so funny. One of the other thoughts you triggered was when I was a kid, I used to have a paper out. People used to get newspapers delivered to their home. And I was very good at accounting. I had my little ledger book with people who paid me. How much did they tip me? <laughs> All those different things. So you, you brought that kind of back to me. And then I remember as a kid, I would save money from the paper out and put it into CDs where back then you used to get 5% plus on CDs, 6% mm -hmm. plus on CDs. And then kind of things changed. And, and, and now I, I thought I was walking around New York City yesterday. I was, I was walking to work and I thought I saw CD rates at like four, five, 6%, which is interesting how this, how it's all cyclical in terms of how this stuff works. Mm -hmm. um, you, you touched upon the, the passive income and, and why, you know, why it should be greater than savings, expenses, and taxes. Can you dig into that a little bit more? Like, so, so I know we touched upon it just, just a minute ago, but can you dig into that a little bit more for us? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, the passive income really for me, that comes from a couple of different viewpoints. The first one is, um, you know, we live on a, on a planet that requires economics, right? So whether I want to participate in that or not, things cost money. Um, you know, and if I don't want to be involved in that, the alternative is, okay, we'll go be homeless in the woods. And so um, if I don't want to go be homeless in the woods, I better have income and I better have money to pay my way through. Um, now, how do I get that money? Now, most people trade time for it. And that's, you know, something that's fine. I think that there's value being exchanged. I'm not going to, you know, sit here and say jobs are bad. Um, I have employees. I think that being employed and earning income is great. But I think every individual should have that point in life where they're like, hey, I want to do what I want to do with my time. Uh, and not have the obligation there. And so that's where we have the option of I can continue working and trading time for money, or I can have passive income that comes in and it pays for me so that I don't have that obligation any longer. 
Um, so that's kind of the first viewpoint I have with that. The second one is there's really two ways to invest, right? I can invest for income or I can invest for appreciation. And so when I invest for income, I'm buying something that pays me regardless of, of me selling it. Like I'm not going to have to get rid of it to get money out of it. Um, and so that's kind of like if I had a farm and it's giving me crops or I had chickens and they're laying eggs, like I'm always going to have that there as long as I have the chicken. Um, and so that's like income investing. Appreciation investing is that I'm buying it for one price. I'm hoping in the future that it goes to a higher price. And then I'm also hoping that I will find somebody else that will pay more for it at that point in time. Um, that's very risky. And so when I look at this, if I'm doing that, there's a level of speculation, like trying to play out how things might go in the future when I really don't have control over that. Um, the second thing is, you know, there's, there's uh, the risk of selling the assets now. So if I have the chickens and they're laying the eggs, why would I sell the chickens if I need the eggs to live on? So if I sell these assets on appreciation, there's an actual increased chance of me running out of money because I'm getting rid of the very things that are gonna pay me in the future. Um, and so to me, that is kind of a self cannibalizing system. Um, and then finally is when I sell an asset, typically I also incur higher taxes. Um, you know, if I have an income producing asset, I'll pay some taxes on the income, but it's not like I'm selling the entire chicken and paying taxes on what it's worth in the future, right? So those are kind of my mindsets behind it. Um, you know, for me, the route to getting there is, is investing in those things that do give me that income, you know, rather than me having to sell them. When the market goes down, it doesn't affect my life at all. I, I, don't, I can't tell you the last time I looked at the stock market um, because I get the same income check every month regardless. Very cool. Very cool. And I think that ties into my next question is how not to pay your taxes and get away with it. Right. So I, I think that was one of the kind of one of the questions we discussed or one of the suggested questions. But I love the fact that we went all over the board. We didn't go. A lot of the questions we talked about today were pretty organic on the show. So thank you for that. Yeah. Um, you know, but how do you not pay your taxes and get away with it? Maybe expand upon that a little bit. Totally, totally. So this this comes down to, you know, taxes as we know it. There's kind of two sides to it. Um, you know, there's the paying of taxes, like how much do I owe and, and what's going to be taken out of my check and all that kind of stuff. Then there are also people call them tax loopholes, but really they're in the tax code. Like the IRS created these ways and incentives and said, if you use blah, 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 you don't have to pay any taxes because we're giving you that, that incentive, right? So in the tax code, um, it's about 6,000 pages in length, less than 0.50% of it actually has to do with the paying of taxes. So I think that's like 30 pages, like it's not a whole lot. Um, you know, this is your rate, here's what you've got to pay and here's why. The rest of it is all ways to legally not pay taxes. So um, the tax code, it was obviously put in law. And, and, and when you look at where laws come from, it comes from our politicians. And then it also comes from wealthy corporations and individuals that pay lobbyists. And that's the two ways we end up getting, you know, things suggested and put into our laws and into our bills in this country. Most of our politicians are top one percenters. If you study their net worths, like they're, they're definitely one percent net worths in most of those categories. Uh, and then also the wealthier net worths are, are one percent as well. So the, the tax code for the most part, it was written and created by the top 1%. And the individual can use it too. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it from a guy that's 30 years old. I've been using it for years. I wasn't a top 1%er when I started. So it takes usually understanding what's in there and how it applies to me. Um, so we own a tax firm. And so my tax firm works with clients and families on how do we, how do we apply the code to your life? Let's look at what you did, where your income is at, 
And let's compare that against the tax code and let's make recommendations on what parts of the code you can use and apply to your life to legally reduce your taxes. Very cool. Very cool. Well, thank you for that. And I think one last question I have for you before we wrap up is I, I know that you and, and your wife, your business partner and wife, Lexi, work together. Mm. Um, can you tell us a little bit and how you balance both business and marriage kind of to ensure both are successful? Yeah. So so I'm not going to say I'm, a, I'm an expert at that one, um, but I can tell you, you know, when, you're, <laughs> when you have a business partner or even when you're married, either way, right? Because there's some people that might have, a, have a, a, a life partner and it's not their business partner. There's some people that might have a business partner and that's not who they're married to. Um, you know, the biggest thing is to make sure you're both going in the same direction, right? Um, and that, that has to do with goals and purposes. What are we going for long-term and why? Uh, and then we agree on how we're going to go about getting there. And so it's kind of like I liken it to if I'm driving, um, I need to make sure that both people are, are committed to being in the same car, going the same direction for the same reasons. Um, sure, we might make some different stops along the way. If you think of it like a road trip, you know, I might be interested in this place. And because of that, we're going to stop. She might be interested in that place. Because of that, we might stop. But the car's still going the same way once we get back in. Right. And I think that that's probably the main thing is having that understanding and that, that mutual agreement. When that's not there, it creates friction. Um, you know, back to the car analogy, it's kind of like having a foot on the gas and the brake at the same time, right? You've got one person that wants to go this way. We got one person that wants to slow down the car or they're trying to grab the wheel and turn it a different direction. Uh, and that's where conflict comes in. And, um, you know, for me, I'm not perfect with that. I'm not going to say I'm the, the world expert at relationships and partnerships, but from my observation, that's been the thing that, that can make or break it is you've got to have those commonalities. Very cool. Very cool. Well, thank you for all of this. I, I usually end the show with kind of a summary recap and then give you the last word. So for me, I'm still going to talk about that 40% rule. I'm going to listen back and kind of a bunch of times on that one. That's an interesting one. And and the 401k history, I think I've heard it before. Uh, you, and there's a lot of nuggets in this podcast. So I, I encourage the listeners to, to really dig deep and, and to listen to these. But the 401k history, I think you put it in such a friendly way and such an understandable way um, that, that people are going to really digest that, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So I think with that, Jerry, what, what are some of the, the last words, some of the takeaways and, and let us know where, let people know where they could find you to connect with you and all those different good things. Sure. You know, um, I think let's piggyback on the 40% thing. I think like for me, um, if I'm a listener, I'm probably thinking about, okay, you know, I'm listening to this guy on the podcast and he's saying save 40% easier said than done. Right. And so I want to just give a little bit of like maybe advice on how to get there. Um, you know, you're probably not going to start from zero to 40. So go from zero to five, like do what you can do and then continue increasing the income and reducing the expenses and, and saving. One of the easiest and best ways to do that is with a forced automated savings plan. Um, you know, if you think about your taxes, those come out of your check before you get paid. The IRS knows they need that money before it hits your bank. Otherwise, it's going to get spent. Um, same thing with the 401k that comes out of your check before you pay your taxes. Um, the mortgage, that's also forced and automated. So everyone that wants to make sure money goes from your wallet to where it needs to go to puts you on a forced automated plan. And so I think the best way to get to that 40% is to do that to yourself with your savings. Make that forced and automated and make sure that that happens and there's no thought, there's no behavior, there's no change that can happen. Um, so that would be kind of my piece of advice or takeaway to wrap the show up today. Um, and I hope that helps as far as where you can find me. Um, so Paul, I do have a free copy of my book. I want to give everyone if that's okay. 
Um, so Perfect. Oh, we love it. Maybe we yes. can drop that in the show notes or something. But if you go to absolutely sure, if you go to jerryfeta.com forward slash B2F promo, um, that's the letter B, the number two, the letter F, and then just the word promo. Um, so jerryfeta.com forward slash B2F promo. You can grab a free copy of that. Um, our team is a little bit different in the sense that the average American doesn't read one book a year fully, uh, which means they don't understand it, they don't finish it, and then they don't apply it. So um, we're, we're giving you the book for free so you have it. We also have a course supervisor on staff. So if you need help, reach out to us and we'll make sure that your, your questions are answered on the material. Um, and same thing with application. You know, if you're looking at, oh, I just learned about this strategy, we're happy to walk through how to apply that once you've uh, learned it and kind of gotten your legs underneath you. Very cool. Well, Jerry, yeah, Jerry, this was awesome. I, I think that from my vantage point, um, once again, going into the podcast, I had one frame of mind, and now I'm coming out with a completely different frame of mind on the topics and everything that you talked about. So thank you for that. I think it's been a very insightful show, and I am going to be personally listening back, and, and hopefully I can change some of my habits, right? So even as a financial dad, I I have some bad financial habits that I continuously work on. Yeah, I think we all <laughs> do. Comes yeah. <laughs> some of these things, right? So, so I'm going to, so that's that. So thanks again. We really appreciate it. So, well, Jerry, I thoroughly enjoyed our discussion today and I'm personally looking forward to the next one. Yes. Thanks everyone for downloading our podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at financialdads at gmail.com or check us out on Facebook. Just go to financialdads.com. So with that, this is Paul reminding you Managing finances can be stressful, but that's why the financial dads are here to help you plan for success. Have a good one, everybody. Be well, 